from the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., this is Update One, the club's official podcast. It features newsworthy stories originating from the NPC facilities, as well as broader topics related to journalism, communications, press freedom, and transparency. I'm Tom Young with the National Press Club's Broadcast Committee in Washington. Reverend Russ Ford served for a decade as Virginia's death row chaplain. During that time, he witnessed 28 executions and counseled the condemned. His new book is titled Crossing the River Styx, the Memoir of a Death Row Chaplain. It's a moving work of reportage, to say the least. Reverend Ford joins us by phone along with co-author Todd Peppers, a professor of public affairs at Roanoke College and a visiting professor of law at Washington and Lee University. Good day, gentlemen. Thanks for having us, Tom. Reverend Ford, we'll start with you. I can't imagine a more difficult job for a minister or for anyone, for that matter. What was it that inspired you to venture into perhaps one of the darkest corners of the human experience? I kind of backed into it. I was a chaplain at Southampton uh, Correctional Facility Complex down in Southampton County, Virginia, and the executions were being started back up in Richmond. Uh, One of my primary mentors, Marjorie Bailey, gave me a call and asked me if I would help her by uh, adopting one of the men on row as as my parishioner. So... Uh, she assigned me to uh, Morris Mason, and I started working with Morris. I'd go see him at the penitentiary at the first first of it, and then they moved death row from the state penitentiary to Mecklenburg, and then I visited him there. Our uh, approach from the chaplain squad was to rotate chaplains as the men came up for executions so that no one chaplain would bear the burden of it all. But the other chaplains weren't quite connecting with the death row men, and I was. So uh, in 85, when I, well, 84, I went back to the uh, Marjorie Bailey contact uh, cancer, and I went to the state penitentiary in her place, and uh, they assigned me to also be the chaplain to the condemned, and I had responsibilities for the spiritual needs of all the men on the road. So that's how I, that's the short of it. One thing your book makes clear is that you could find the humanity in almost every death row inmate. How did you reach that part of someone who's been written off by society? Well, I didn't at first. Uh, The first few executions and the men that I worked with, uh, I would say we did a poor job. We, We really didn't know how to relate. But with some time and going through these, uh, the the pressure-packed executions, uh, I began to see the uniqueness in the men, each man different. You couldn't use a cookie-cutter approach, you know, one way of looking at uh, treatment. You had to really develop a unique program for each one of them. So I became very involved in, in, uh, in visiting them, consistently being with them. I, I think a, a large part of that is in ministry. We, the man is an object when he's on death row to us. He's a person. And we had compassion and concern for them, not about the execution, but about their own emotional well-being, their, their spiritual well-being. So that helped a great deal. And doing that consistently through the years, I think, developed uh, where the men had uh, faith in us, faith in me, 
that I could help them. They, they began to believe that we carried something that could help them. And out of that faith they had in us, they developed faith in themselves as we began to show them where the power of their own personality and their, their own well-being was, which built hope. And that spread on death row. And on death row, they began to welcome us uh, more freely, welcome me more freely into their lives. And uh, so it was tough at first. It was about uh, three or four years there where we didn't, we didn't scratch the surface uh, on the men at all. And then spiritual events began to occur, and we created a sacred space, even in the midst of uh, such a thing as an execution. To put this in a public policy context, I'll turn to co-author Todd Peppers. In the book's preface, Todd and his son and fellow writer Charles Peppers mentioned that in 2021, Virginia became the first of the former Confederate states to abolish capital punishment. They also say it's time to account for the damage caused by the death penalty. What was that damage? Well, I believe that the death penalty hurts everyone who it touches. So just not the men of the row, the guards, the administrators, family members of both victims and defendants, and then people like Russ, the chaplains who were going into the row, poorly paid, uh, poorly supported, oftentimes having obstacles thrown in their way. These men and women who were going in to minister to the men, to be the only loving face uh, that these men saw, were profoundly injured by uh, their work. Russ was in the death chamber with 28 men. Uh, As the introduction to the book talks about, Russ himself was almost electrocuted during one of those executions. So as a public policy, it had disastrous consequences. And at the very least, this book wanted to place a sort of spotlight on all the individuals who who got drug into this policy who were damaged. According to the Death Penalty Information Center, more than half the states still have capital punishment on the books. Uh, Todd, where do we stand now? As a nation, are we trending away from it, or is it the other way around? Well, if you look at the uh, number of executions, the number of convictions, it's heartening that there has been a dramatic drop since the late 1990s. The exception, of course, is to states like Texas, Florida, um, South Carolina, which seem to be uh, almost doubling down. Doubling down in terms of re-embracing old methods of execution, like the electric chair, because it comes, because of challenges to lethal injection, but also doubling down in terms of I think the, the stripping away of basic human rights, you know, it was only about a year ago where uh, the Supreme Court told Texas that they could not ban spiritual advisors from saying a prayer or laying hands on the condemned in the death chamber. As horrible as Russ's experience was in the 80s and 90s in terms of the limits upon him, it was light and day ahead of some of these states now that it seems like are, are, are rushing, um, competing with each other to make this even more sort of barbaric uh, and the last moments sort of sterile and lonely for the men. So the good news is nationwide we're trending away. However, in the South, uh, some states are still continuing at, at, um, to execute. And it also seems like the, uh, the protections, the rights afforded these men continue to be stripped away. 
Uh, Todd, in the afterward, you acknowledged that most of the inmates on Virginia's death row had committed brutal crimes and they needed to be put away from society, but the state still had certain obligations to them. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. And that's one thing we wanted to do in the book, Tom, is we did not want to shy away from the men's crimes, the enormous damage they caused, the pain they caused to their victims and the families. I just think that, uh, you know, Helen Prejean, the author of Dead Men Walking, raises the question, you know, why do we kill the show that killing is wrong? And I think Russ would agree with me that many of these men needed to be permanently removed from society. But whether you still think they have a spark of humanity in them, still have a spark of the divine in them, they still should be afforded basic human rights. And they weren't um, in terms of conditions of confinement. They they were not afforded those rights. That's an important thing to uh, remind people of is we did not treat these men in a humane way. Reverend Ford, uh, to bring the conversation back to you, sir, what would you say to lawmakers who support the death penalty? I would affirm what Todd just said in terms of the killing machine that's created by the General Assembly and that all the people that are involved in it are affected by it. I mean, do we really want citizens that are a part of a killing machine? You know, we put them through a lot of uh, a lot of grief. Uh, so I, I see it that way, and I know that I have had delayed stress syndrome and, and post-traumatic uh, stress syndrome. One warden uh, in the early days of, uh, I think it was James Brawley's execution, uh, was after the execution, he went home and his wife wouldn't let him back in the house. He had to burn his suit because it's the smell that was on it and come into the house naked and wash before his wife would have anything to do with him. Wow. So that says something about what goes on. I mean, when you boil blood in a human being and you burn them, you know, kill them from inside out, uh, set them on fire, as it were, uh, you're you're also creating fatty tissues in the cell house or in that block, and uh, it gets attached to the hair of those who are involved in it. I remember um, I had trouble with uh, the stress going across me kind of in a coarse manner across my gut. And I remember kind of wincing once in the, the, the man who eventually became the uh, chief uh, of uh, the death squad, captain of the death squad. He was there and he said, what happened to you? And I told him that I had had this occur after an execution for several months. You know, you know after the execution, I'd have these kind of bursts of energy going across me. He said he had them and that uh, he had just recently been at a pork barbecue with his family and friends. And uh, he smelt it in the air and it brought him right back to the death house. And uh, it made him have those same types of uh, energies coursing through his body. He said that it took him two to three weeks after an execution just to get a num- any kind of sense of uh, normality after the execution. So I would tell them those kind of stories because they're true and because there there are victims that are the, of the of the execution itself uh, from participating in it. The other thing is is the cost. The human cost is one thing, but then there's the financial cost. Uh, executing somebody can cost between a million and a half to two million dollars over the course of that uh, as it runs to the electric chair. Um, you know, you can you can house them for under a million dollars. Your book profiles individual death row inmates whom you counseled. Can you tell us about some who most stand out in your memory? 
Morris Mason will always stand out in my memory. He was my first execution, and I was totally unprepared for for what occurred. I, he was a mentally challenged individual. I love very low IQ. I uh, also suffered from uh, schizophrenia or psychosis, and uh, he, he did a, he did a heinous crime, and uh, and he was uh, sentenced, and we had him. Morris didn't even realize that he was going to die. He didn't. He had no ability. He had the uh, mental capacity of maybe a six or seven year old, and he really couldn't conceptualize his own death. We worked really hard to try to get him off of it. The governor did meet with us. We spoke to him about Morris's conditions, but he decided to go through with the execution. Here, I've ministered to Morris for several years, and then I watch him being put in the chair. The officers that are strapping him in and putting the little helmet on his head and the mask over his face, I knew all of them. I'd grown up with them in corrections. And I was just, it was, seemed like to me somebody of a higher authority needed to be present if we were going to take life. But of course, that didn't occur. But then the electricity was turned on. He lunged in his chairs. I'll never forget this. And his face, it turned red. It bubbled up a little bit. His hands fluttered in like little dark doves, feathers, you know, kind of going back and forth uh, that were strapped down, his hands were. It was smelly. I could smell uh, his burnt, his being cooked inside out. And uh, it stayed with me. I, I still have some shivers when I think about that execution and, and what happened to Morris Mason. The chapter on Henry Tucker, who was serving a long sentence but not on death row, describes horrific medical neglect in prison during the 1970s. Can you tell us a bit about his story, and are things better now? Henry Tucker was a, a, a very significant uh, case in Virginia history. I, I had been working uh, at the penitentiary for a little while there, and I went over to the hospital, which was a part of my uh, regular rounds, and when I went in, the place was in total chaos. I mean, the, the nurses were running around. The inmates were up out of their beds and all over the place. And there was a lot of, you know, shouting going back and forth. There was ordering to put the men back, get to, for them to get back in their beds. It was very chaotic. Uh, and I noticed that they were uh, moving a bed uh, uh, on wheels towards the freight elevator to, to move them out, uh, somebody out. Uh, and uh, and I saw that it was Henry Tucker. So I went on in after that. They, they, they finally got it calmed down after the, the bed had gotten on the uh, elevator and gone. Uh, and Henry uh, Henry was had left, and there was a, a former nurse who was a, an inmate who it was there for minor surgery. I knew him well, and he says, "You won't believe it." He said, "I've never seen anything like it." Now he's a nurse, and uh, he said, "Tucker," and I said, "Well, what happened?" You ever? And he said, "You ever smell Tucker?" I said, "Sure." I, I, he he stunk, and uh, he said, "Well, they took off the bandages, and there were huge platelets of." Uh, bed sores with maggots in them. What had happened to Henry was he had been charged in 1964 for attempted rape and breaking and entering. He served 12 years and was denied parole. And when he was denied parole, he uh, acted out and they felt it was psychological. So they sent him to a mental hospital in the state. Uh, after four months there, they returned him to the prison. Uh, when his behavior continued. He was sent to the prison hospital and forcibly given large amounts of prolixin. Uh, prison inmates uh, gave this uh, prescription to him each day, 
And over a two-week period, Henry was injected with five times the recommended dosage from that coma and put him, in a, it put him into a coma and caused paralysis of his arms and legs, which drew up where his lawyer described him somewhat like a frog. Uh, what had happened, Henry, he laid there for six months, and during that time, his muscles uh, ossified, and uh, he wasn't going to make it. They had to literally do surgery to break him loose so that they could put him in a wheelchair. He uh, ate with uh, one arm. They, they were able to get the joints moving somewhat on his arms, but he had to have a, 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 a spoon on the end of a two-foot-long stick to pick up his food with and put it in his mouth. That was a very gross scene, and what happened there was uh, Henry sued uh, the state for his medical care and won the largest medical lawsuit at that time uh, ever awarded to an inmate uh, from a prison of $500,000, which today would be about $2 million. Another story that struck me is that of Michael Marnell Smith. You describe how religion can become a barrier to growth if misused. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, the role of a spiritual advisor extends beyond being a friend and an advocate of the Kim. You know, a spiritual advisor's needed to, that the, the, the man himself needs to, to uh, reach into himself, into his own dark recesses. Uh, in terms of structuring uh, the intervention for, like Michael Smith or others, I found that a blunt dimensional approach, such as a single belief system or creed, you know, where you're trying to save the man, you know, you just repeat this with these words and you'll be saved, was, was uh, of no value. Uh, you following another person's re- uh, revelations proved to be a dead end. You know, muttering a few words and pronouncing that a person saved is an illusion uh, propagated by magical thinkers. There's no salvation without the painful work of bringing the darkness to light. Michael uh, was raised in a, a Christian home. Uh, he lived on a, a farm that was uh, owned and op- owned by the Church of God and was ministered by his uh, family. Uh, he had uh, two brothers that uh, had also had uh, t- uh, stays with the criminal justice system, um, and both of them became ministers for a while for periods of their lives. Michael knew the Bible very well. And whenever we would work with him, he would go into quoting the Bible. And at times, it would he would rattle off scriptures faster than I could keep up. He knew the Bible better than I did, and other chaplains did. He he was just uh, frantic with his his Bible preaching, and he would walk back and forth in his cell and just quote scripture after scripture and preach sermons and and do all those things. Um, he claimed that uh, you know, sort of on the short side, he claimed that he. Uh, had been forgiven and that God had cast out the demon that was in his heart. But you could never probe him. You could never get into his life. He was just so guarded religiously. Uh, And I'm saved. The old man did the crime. Let him do the time. Set me free. You know, that kind of thing. And um, on the night of his execution, he continued that uh, same rattling off of scriptures and stuff, and there were three of us there that were ministers, and we just sort of amened him and at that point because it was a lost cause. And so we went into the chamber when as he was going, he was still quoting the scriptures, but only they went to a squeal. I've never seen anyone as frightened as Michael Smith. He was scared out of his mind as he went towards the chair. It was a very frightening-filled death for him.
Tom, if I may, you know, the, 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 the final postscript or ironic twist to all that is that uh, Michael wanted to uh, hold his Bible, yes. his Bible with him. Yes. He was electrocuted in the Commonwealth of Virginia. The Department of Corrections didn't want him to do that because they were afraid that the Bible might catch on fire. Yeah. So they're, you, we're not worried about the man and what happens to his body, but we're worried about, you know, the book catching on fire. Wow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yes. Uh, Russ, you discuss in the book how this work challenged your own faith, which is certainly understandable. How did you overcome that? It was a, a process. It took time. Uh, I didn't have a lot of faith at one point at all. I, I, I guess you'd say I was agnostic at that point. I was watching television, and I saw Joseph Campbell being uh, on the program, and I caught just a little bit of his program. Uh, Joseph Campbell's an, a mythologist, an uh, anthropologist, uh, who was on PBS public television, and this was just one of those shows. I was kind of captivated, so I looked into it. I got the, you know, the tape itself. I, I watched Joseph Campbell's speeches. He kind of pointed me in some directions that I hadn't thought of. Part of that was uh, I got involved in, uh, when he rec- he recommended the perennial philosophy, looking at the similarities of religions as opposed to the differences. And because usually that's what you get from religious organizations is the differences that they have with others, that they're unique and exclusive, that they have the the real true message and everyone else's is inauthentic and, you know, heresy or, you know, they condemn it. But Joseph Campbell looked at the similarities of of religions and uh, mystical experiences that people were having. Uh, I read his books and uh, became somewhat of a devotee to that, to his words, uh, along with my traditional uh, Christian background. Uh, and uh, I began to meditate. I, I went and did some meditation classes. I came back. I had my, you know, I, I learned a lot about that, and that helped a great deal. And I still continue some of those practices today. So it was a slow process, and uh, eventually got to where we were celebrating. Uh, you know, the, it, it, let me say this. Of the 28 men that I worked with, uh, six of them had bad deaths, or, what, or not good. Uh, you know, 22 of them had good death experiences where they were they had ecumenity. They had found that peace, that passive all understanding, and they died well. Uh, one went in and kissed the chair. Uh, he didn't do it out of disrespect. It was just the opposite. He, he respected uh, something that he had feared for so long, and he found that there was no fear in death. Had another man who was uh, getting ready to go into the chamber, and he looks at me and he says, "Russ, if I had to go through all this again, uh, including not including the the hurting of a person that he had done, but all of the hell that Death Row had brought, and that night of him having to go in and sit in the lecture chair, he said, I would do it all again to be where I am tonight." That's a profound uh, revelation for a man to receive as he's been getting ready to be executed. A couple of other men say the very similar thing. So, you know, spiritual spirituality and good psychology, healthy mix uh, can bless your soul, and we saw that in the in the death house. I thought your final chapter, The Bitter and the Good, uh, where you talk about some of these moments, was perhaps the most uh, – uplifting of of the chapters in the book and uh, i believe there was a word that you used for these these special moments that that these men found uh, at times can you elaborate on yes sir yes 
Can you elaborate on that a bit? Well, the nemesis is, is sort of the presence of God or the, the presence of the divine and life that we see in, in all of life. You know, um, we're, we're spiritual beings, whether we know it or not. Uh, the same thing that, uh, that, that these men had or found uh, can be found in other places, but it is the presence of God. It is numinous quality of things that comes and that we know that we're, there is a spark of God in us, and we're in, the, you know, we're, we're not only is God in our heart, but we're in the heart of God. And it is that presence that you feel. We, we name it by many names. All over the world, they call it different things. And let me say this, even if you're a non-believer, you have no faith in, in any religion, you can experience the numinous. Well, thank you so much for your time and your insights, gentlemen. This has uh, certainly been a fascinating discussion. We've been talking with Reverend Russ Ford, author of Crossing the River Styx, the memoir of a death row chaplain, along with co-author Todd Peppers. And again, thanks so much for your time. I'm Tom Young, reporting for Update One from the National Press Club in Washington. You have been listening to Update One, the official podcast of the National Press Club the world's leading professional organization for journalists and a vigorous advocate of press freedom worldwide. If you have any questions or comments about Update One, send an email to updateonepodcast at gmail.com.